We're excited to announce the launch of the first Cloud Native Rejects podcast. This podcast series will focus on the iconoclastic inventors behind the Cloud Native revolution. These are the people who think different, who reject the status quo, and in doing so, dare to risk rejection. In the words of Steve Jobs, while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones that do. Welcome. So uh, I'm here with Vincent Betts. Uh, how are you doing, Vincent? Howdy, howdy. My name's Mark Coleman. Uh, I work as a director of developer relations at Packet, now Equinix Metal. And I've known you, Vincent, for so long that I forgot where we met. Do you remember? I don't, I don't remember. I think the, the last time we hung out might have been Toronto at one of the Linux Foundation conferences, but it's it's been a minute. Well, obviously, I know you quite well, uh, but those listening may not. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Like you said, I'm Vincent Batts. I'm now CTO at Kenfolk. Kenfolk is deep Linux and Kubernetes experts, um, which is quite nice for the history that I've been involved in the Linux and Kubernetes container space for at least since the Docker inception side of that, but even me personally with Linux much further. Um, have worked in software for quite a while, but thankfully almost 10 years now has been in open source. So I work more with community often than even just companies, but as we all know, that's kind of a mixed up scene right now. All right, so there are brief introductions. I'm sure over the series of this podcast, you're gonna to get to know us a lot better. And of course, all of our guests. Uh, we have many amazing guests coming up in the future. To speak a little bit more about how myself and Vincent relate to the, the subject of thinking differently, maybe Vincent, you want to say what that means for you? Yeah, thinking differently, the kind of like underdog stories or rejection stories, like how, how is it that people were, were told you can't do this or like that will never work? Or it's, it's even like how I mentioned with things being mixed up in open source versus business and like sometimes it's just helping to change the world because you see that something has a massive gap and it's like, well, you can't turn that into a business. And maybe that wasn't always the purpose. It was just to challenge that things can be better and people, uh, uh, you know, pursue that doggedly and make a difference. And it didn't always have to be for a business reason, but still it's how, how is it that people challenge the way that people think, um, whether they're, out to be on a crusade or they're just literally incrementally working along um, to improve and change that status quo. Uh, yeah, the whole idea of, you know, reject the idea of rejection. It, it's something that I think many of us realize at some point where you feel that moment of the Charlie Brown moment. Like, I don't know, people might think I'm <laughs> stupid for this. Um, and, and you do it anyways. And the best thing that can happen is that you learn from it and whether or not you and your incremental step actually changed the world, but you've made a difference in some area and you yourself might've learned a lesson that you'll carry forward into the next time that you make that leap of, I don't know, people might think I'm stupid and you do it over and over again. Uh, you mentioned incremental change. That's actually a conversation we've been having recently at work, which is around what I've been calling, I can't blame anyone else for this, but what I've been calling sort of two sort of drivers for innovation. And one of them is, you know, go out there and ask the market what they want and then build it. And that's you know, a perfectly wise decision if, you, if you're working in a certain sort of problem space. But I think what's interesting for me is that very often in technology, it's really about building something that people might want 
and that takes belief. And the example I always give is like nobody asked for Twitter. <laughs> like you couldn't have gone and like surveyed a bunch of people and said, you know, do you want this? Someone had to just say, I think this is a really good idea. I'm going to do it. And then it worked. And combining those two approaches to figuring out what you're going to go and build is super interesting for me. Mm. I think often, like you said, you know, there's just an instinct. I think sometimes that comes from having worked really deep in the in, in the bowels of a problem space for a while and you can't necessarily articulate why you want to do it. You just like, that would be cool. And then connecting that initial instinct to like getting an MVP together and, and finding out, you know, that other people agree with you is a really interesting process. Yeah. And, and it is it is very much that same kind of space. Like I see in various natures of conversations and some of them will kind of like twist your your, your, your brain around a little bit, but it's sometimes not always describing what is there, but what isn't there. And like, even when you hear teams kind of like bantering back and forth or even in their like daily stand up and whatnot. And when you find those things of like, we're just not making the choice to do this, you know, some kind of like authentication piece or some kind of like network connection, or I don't know, whatever, the, whatever the area that they're in. They're like, no, but that's like a notorious pain in the butt. So we're just going to not do that. And so it just becomes like a line item of, yeah, that, that's, that's like a notoriously, you know, pain problem. And it's just, that's the reason we're not doing this. And so at some point the conversation is frequently, and it's very comfortable to be like, this is what we are doing because it's a very tangible, like we already have work in that area, but to describe and see these hidden parts of like what we're not doing because either they don't exist or, you know, like seeing that as the gaps often that incremental change or whatever, like, you know, defining like what would be something that kind of fits in these spaces that you can't see and actually solves a problem for people or makes life easier. It, it often becomes that iteration and easy to reject because then it would be like, Oh, but that's something new and different and might even like shift out of the way other stuff that we were doing before. But, it's easy to find what we do have, but it's not always easy to, to define what we don't have. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I've been a big proponent of iterative product processes for a long time, you know, from agile to um, CICD and getting faster feedback in all sorts of ways. And I could go on about that all day. But what's interesting for me is I think quite often the initial assumptions you make for a product or a project end up becoming a sort of prism. Because suddenly it's like, well, we've made these initial assumptions. We've agreed on these abstractions. To do this other idea that looks good would be such a pain that we're just going to keep going this way. But then also inspire people to do it is difficult because it's like, oh, we're going to, it's like a sunken cost fallacy, right? It goes right into the yeah. psyche of who we are. Like we, oh, but we work so hard on it. It's like, yeah, but it's wrong. So sorry, we've got to do this other thing. And I think that takes a, a certain skill set. Yeah. Oh, that guy's great. I was, I was, I was actually just chatting with Jimmy Zelensky last night, who was, in, you know, Quay and CoreOS and now then Red Hat and you know that that same kind of like don't get tied too closely to like even if it is your your prized child idea kind of thing because sometimes you the, the value add that you bring in other places might end up being your oh we actually solved a really cool problem for somebody over here many people will steer against it it was almost exactly his words last night not quite in your own prison but yeah the same kind of concept that like you're, you're now tied to something and so that's that's kind of like the, the the nature of this podcast is these kind of lessons learned, the kind of challenges that folks overcame, or even even if it's kind of the meta conversation of not in the details of you know how a particular technology was implemented, pushback and argument of the gory details of it, but even just 
the kind of meta philosophy or, you know, meta conversation that happens when you are pursuing something that you see, like you might even set your eyes on a goal to solve a problem challenge that you see that might help somebody, or even like you said, like ask, asking a market what they want versus then as you're on that journey and seeing how you've, you've actually solved other areas and it becomes the, the targeted attack. So some of the speakers will be from all over, I feel like, that have seen those kind of challenges, attacked them, and interwoven even with some of the lessons learned because, Mark, you know, you're, you're a host on this, but you're practically in one of these roles that we could interview as well because you've overcome some of those things. So it, it very, very natural and very raw feeling of a subject, I feel like, because you probably have so many personal experiences on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose a few. I'm not sure if I would compare myself to most of the people we're going to be interviewing. But, uh, <laughs> we've certainly come up with some crazy ideas before and, and, you know, they've flown, they've worked. And I think what's always really encouraging for me is to share the idea quickly. I, I, I think, you know, look at Software Circus, for example, like let's make a conference where everyone wears like costumes and we have um, <laughs> like an actual nightclub in the in the conference (laughs) out in a warehouse district it's just wonderful yeah and it was like well that just kind of feels right um but let me first go and check that with some of the other people and you know when two or three say yeah that's a good idea i think what we what we did a good job of there and in some of the other areas was just saying well you know screw it let's do it then very often things like this failed but i think the software circus is a good example of one that seems to have succeeded very well i think people connected to the fun of it and i think a lot of that has to do with delivery you know, Software Circus isn't a technological product, but for any product, I think there's so much about the spirit in which you bring it that gets people to sort of come along on the ride with you. Yeah. I mean, whether whether it is even a conference or a technology or a whole ecosystem, I think that part of it is probably the more daunting and not really when you have broken the the friction, you know, you've turned like potential energy into kinetic energy on just the ability for people to open the conversation to think about a solution, you know? And so with the frequently we find that there's probably other places that have, you know, executed something better. Um, They've probably written the more technically correct and, you know, better solution for something. But as soon as you have a couple of the, you know, competitors or a couple of competing ideas in the, in the space, the, the one that makes it like you hit it and it feels right. And you start getting people to think like, yeah, I know it's not perfect, but you know, it's really cool. And I'm talking to other people about it and you, you get that, you kind of like have broken the, the crowd think, you know, the, the, the ability for people to even consider, you know, it's not always exciting to be in that spot, but at least, you know, you've gotten people thinking about it. But eventually you, you look at it and you look like, why did Kubernetes win? There were there, you know, there had been orchestration things and like Kubernetes is really, really complex. So there might've been a, you know, a technically neater solution or something like that ran with perfection, but it didn't get the crowd thinks, you know? And so like Kubernetes opened that conversation. So sometimes it is just like, well, it felt natural and it, and it worked for what we were doing and it got people talking. And then like that became the momentum needed to actually be a disruption or, you know, like overcome the rejection needed to, to, when a certain train of thought. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, overcoming that group think, if you make it really concrete, basically means going out there and saying things in situations in which you could just look totally stupid. <laughs> and you've, <laughs> you've kind of, you've kind of got to be okay with that. 
And I think one of the things I'm going to really enjoy digging into with our guests is like, you, you might be cool now, but you were crazy at the time. And, you know, how did that feel? How did you pluck up the courage to go and say the things you were thinking? And it's not as if, you know, most of the people we're going to speak to are on the show because they were successful, but I'm sure they will have been unsuccessful at other things. And really, you know, how do you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going? How do you get yourself ready to go and give that first presentation where you know that it doesn't fit into everyone's sort of mental model of the world, but you believe in it anyway? And I think, you know, as you probably noticed with a lot of the stuff that I do, both written and uh, spoken, I always come down to the sort of human emotions of the whole thing. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Although we're going to be talking about, you know, this broader idea of innovation and rejection and bravery and all those kind of things, uh, essentially this is coming out of the the podcast, which was spawned to a large extent through the Rejects Conference, which came out of Cloud Native. I think this is probably <laughs> a good time to um, maybe talk about your history in Cloud Native. Yeah, and and it is even that word, and I don't I don't know what committee and panel actually gets to create all these interesting words, but Cloud Native is one of those that. Even even being in the bowels of that ecosystem, and when I first heard cloud native, I, I, I participated in laughing at it because I thought it was kind of a dumb word. But the more that you think about these things, and you're like, well, I guess it really is honestly the, probably the best way to think about how these, these items of compute and how we've kind of like moved around the concept of like, you know, you had terminals and you had mainframes and you had like personal computers and you've had this kind of like elastic sinusoidal wave back and forth. And what we're seeing now is like, obviously cloud was like a revolution. Well, you know, VMs were a revolution than like VMs in the cloud, but what is cloud? You have like databases in the cloud and you have services in the cloud and all these different things that are drastically different, but they're all still cloud. Now we're seeing that it's not just cloud because people are like, cool. I, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm familiar and comfortable with running it out in the some other somebody else's you know the cloud is just somebody else's computer but i also want that same experience on prem or i want it in somewhere like resource or network constrained place that's not quite the cloud because the cloud has you know a lot of good bandwidth and all this other kind of stuff i might be running it out on some like edge of the network but i still want that same experience you know i want to kind of package my workload into a container and i still kind of want to orchestrate it and see logging or anomaly detection or whatever it is like i still want the same experience that i've kind of come to learn about it living in the cloud but i've got a lot of other places that it's going to be living kind of a mix a hybrid of different places but i still want the same experience and you're like okay so it's kind of like the cloud native aspect of it and to see that have evolved in all the different places and geez louise all the different specifications and places that people have had, had to kind of overcome these awkward describing of things and frequently getting laughed at because you're like that's dumb why don't we just like write the code and fix you know these one-off use cases until it just all works and then you realize like oh i see because software and people's ideas grow just like the forest does like they're <laughs> going to grow in all different directions and as soon as this one plant ventures too far from where you know the conditions that originally lived in that plant, same plant will eventually adapt to look different because it's in new conditions. And now you've got, you know, this whole little ecosystem of different and beautiful, unique snowflakes all over the place. And each time any one of those starts to venture out, 
is literally setting itself up for a new time to be rejected. So the cloud native aspect of it has been fascinating. And the, and I think the other piece of it that makes really this conversation have a host of people that you know can speak on the show on this kind of topic is interesting because the underlying thing of like how open source has evolved over the years because we've obviously had various tech giants in the in the past but the technology that's evolved since the 60s has either been academics or certain companies there were armies of people that were working behind the scenes doing smart stuff but hidden behind the name of whatever company that they were working on and that's fine for some of them but you know thankfully some of them you know were able to get their acclaims outside the company as well since the time the open source has become the way things are done, you know, the way that companies like Microsoft have embraced it, have put these kind of conversations literally out in the open. So as people are iterating, you can hear these people's stories. You can literally read and go through those, you know, GitHub issues where this stuff was hashed out or somebody was made fun of for, you know, in some situations. And I think that's the interesting part for me for having been through this time with cloud native and being able to have host people on the show is that it all happened in the open by and large. It was, it was kind of a shared experience. So some of our listeners will even be able to say like, Oh yes, I I remember when that thing splashed on Twitter or I remember actually seeing links to that, you know, that GitHub thread or that email thread. Um, because it was probably the time when somebody like had visceral interactions with that or those people, and so for me, it's not just the, the cloud native technology, which is neat. And you can get into the philosophy, you know, like meta pieces like the I started to do, but also the fact that it all happened in the open. Uh, so recapping some of that might just be a very, I expect it to be a very real thing of like, oh, I remember this person. I remember that interaction. I remember. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe that's that, that's a really good point, right? Because all of the people that are going to come on the show are not going to have done this on their own. So it's going to be interesting to speak to them about who else was critical to them. My cloud native journey started like way before. So I, I was working at TomTom as a C++ programmer in 2006, I joined. And it was kind of fun, but, and we were doing these embedded, yeah, I mean, they're like boxes that you ship to people. And that was great. But then there was this little team in the corner and they were called developer support at the time. And they were doing stuff like supporting Jira instances and like supporting uh, our Perforce instance. We used Perforce at the time, running the build servers and stuff. Man, I, I used to love to hate on Perforce. You love, and then after you love Perforce. Years, I, loved yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. Um, anyway, so, you know, that could have just been this really normal career progression for me, right? Which is like, get better at C++, become a senior, become a staff, like maybe going to management, something like that. But there was just something about, I was like, I know they're just running tools, but they seem to be the tools that keep all of this shit working. I want to go and work over there. So I asked if I could go and work in that team. And the people in my team were like, you crazy? You're going the wrong way. But the DevSup team also dealt with all of the branching problems that we had. So we had like 60 different product teams that would have to get down to one code branch. And you used to have this like, you'd have a window to hit, an integration window. And if you didn't hit the integration window, you had to wait two more months before your project would get into mainline. So you just missed the entire release. And it was huge. Oh my gosh. And we had like five different CI systems and all sorts of stuff like this. So developer support at TomTom in like 2009, 10 was helping with what you would now call DevOps. 
And I became obsessed with this idea of making it easier to compile and deliver software. Now, we were delivering them two ways, one to the website, tomtom.com, but also into the devices themselves. And, that, and then there was all sorts of like hairy testing problems. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And what I just kept running up against was like, machines are slow and terrible. And then Docker came out. And I was like, this is everything. This changes everything. And you know, one of those moments where even if it doesn't necessarily work, it still seems like a good idea. Uh, I remember people saying, but it doesn't do networking. It doesn't do storage. What are you talking about? And I was like, no, it doesn't matter. Imagine if we fixed that, right? It would change everything. And everyone's just looking at me like, <laughs> what's this guy talking about? And I used, You start I used drawing to... boxes and you're like, imagine this works and imagine that works. Wouldn't that all be great? Yeah. Right. And uh, I used to go to DevOps, uh, the DevOps meetup, DevOps Amsterdam, and, and give presentations on this. And that was a mainly ops crowd. And, you know, they had to worry about things I didn't have to worry about, which, and they had to worry about all the things that Docker didn't do. So they just hated it at first. They were like, this is awful. <laughs> so much so that one day we set up a meetup where it was like a presidential debate, right? It was like for and against Docker. And it got brutal. But like you said earlier, there was a lot of passion in the room. And I thought that's really oh interesting. God. And that's when we set up Docker Amsterdam as a, as a meetup uh -huh. group. But that was really how I got into the space. I just wanted to deliver software faster. And I wanted to deliver software without using something like Puppet or Chef because it was just becoming a huge problem. I wanted to ship an atomic thing that would work that was the same that was running on my laptop. And, um, and then everything that happened after that, right? So then the CNCF happened and I ended up being involved in that. But it really came down to just that almost maniacal concentration on how do I get a faster feedback loop between developers and production. You know, there are many other ways to come into cloud native, but that was sort of my on-ramp. Uh, I, I love that idea. I mean, <laughs> I, not that I love presidential debates, but the idea of like for and against, because it really like those kind of things, especially like, A, if you have the passion in the room that people are willing to say, defend something for and against. And even better, if any at any point, one of those people who is arguing for could imagine like, I see how you're arguing against that. Great then you have this outcome that's like, great, now we have like our bullet point list of <laughs> what and how we need to fix yeah. it, like use case and requirements, you know? And and really, you know, in that aspect of the cloud native piece of it, I kind of found myself honestly on the uh, bottom side looking up in a lot of these situations, you know, even being in the middle of a lot of them was, was like, ah, but you see, like it doesn't work properly here. Let me let me just fix that for you. Or like, <laughs> here's here's a portion of the you know the 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 whole system that you've kind of made an assumption that one day this will work, but we need to fix it now before we keep like going on possibly a you know half baked assumption. Uh, just incrementally step link, stepping along in those pieces, I found myself like in the middle of a lot of conversations of like, yeah, but we just eventually had to fix that. You know, things not being able to be checksummed, or eventually somebody's going to want to sign these things, and like, is they're going to have a bad time? it helps to have that argument for and against effectively to, to move the mind thinking, develop those use cases. And I mean, you hear people talking about get up, getting up and speaking in front of a crowd is like a number one fear. And it really is comes down to that rejection of that people are going to not like what they think, or they're just going to think they're stupid. I, I love, I love that idea a lot of like a forum where people are hashing out these ideas that are, up for rejection and it's not always the the technical best winner but eventually you know you get people thinking about it and they get invested in it
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the other flip sides to this that's going to be interesting, sort of, you know, the conditions within which somebody succeeds in this kind of thing. Dan Kong from um, the CNCF gave a, gave a great talk, I think in San Diego, around why often, you know, you were mentioning before, like there was Kubernetes, but there was like Nomad, there was Docker, Swarm, there was, it was like eight. And, and it turns out that whenever there's a big breakthrough, there's often fertile land. It's like, it's kind of in the air. And it's going to be interesting to talk to the guests around, you know, certainly they had an interesting idea, but which conditions were right for that to work? I mean, I remember just around like super early Docker when you still had to like patch your kernel to make it run. Yeah, install, install these other things and it only, or it only ran on Ubuntu because of AUFS. And, oh gosh. Me and Adrian Moatz, we were like, we should just have a way to orchestrate these just on like a single machine. Uh, it's got to be a directed acyclic graph. This can't be hard. And then literally the next Wednesday, Fig came out, which is now Compose, of course. And sometimes the technology conditions are such that there's a lot of problems that seem like they can be solved in a weekend, you know, MVP. And I think that's what gets the most excitement because people are like, oh, I could really make a big impact here. I think it's time to outro this uh, this, this intro episode. What do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. First of all, subscribe to the social channels, Rejects.io, so R-E-J-E-K-T-S-I-O on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure when this one goes out, we'll be sharing it there and uh, we'll put all the other social channels in there as well. Cool. All right. Well, that seems like pretty good scope for this first one. I'm looking forward to getting into those guests and uh, this was a real pleasure. Thank you, Mark. All right. Bye-bye.